Recently, Lango Dean sat down with the 2020 Women of Color STEM Conference Technologist of the Year, Rear Admiral Sylvia Trent Adams, for an in-depth conversation. Topics range from recognizing achievements and acknowledging challenges, how she helped improve healthcare services in different communities, her experience in Hampton University's nursing program, and much more. Stay tuned for CCG Media's presentation of A Conversation with Rear Admiral Sylvia Trent Adams, featuring Lango Dean. Good morning, everyone. We welcome today the 2020 Technologist of the Year. But before she was nominated as uh, Technologist of the Year for the Women of Color STEM Conference, she is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health, PDASH for short. Uh, she was nominated to this position in January 2019. Uh, she's also a Rear Admiral. Welcome, Rear Admiral Sylvia Trent Adams. Good morning. Hello. How are you? Very well, ma'am. We're very happy to have you here today. And uh, it's also a very uh, difficult time for us, uh, for the country, for America, for the world. Uh, so you're receiving an award at a very uh, momentous time in history. Here you are, you have a doctorate, you're a registered nurse, you're a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. What message do you have for women of color read magazine readers, for the world, for the Women of Color STEM conference? What message do you have during this time with a pandemic that is still raging? Well, thank you for that question. What I would say is that it is critical for all of us to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities. We must be informed about COVID-19 and most importantly, practice the safety measures that have been provided by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It is, it is so important for us to socially distance ourselves, practice vigorous and routine hand washing, and also wear face coverings in areas where we're going to be exposed to other individuals um, outside of our home or individuals who may um, be infected with COVID. It is so important for us to protect our communities and our families during this time but take heart that we must believe the science. Um, this is a new and emerging and changing um, virus, uh, but we must remain vigilant in pr protecting ourselves and our community. Thank you, Rear Admiral. Um, last year, uh, you were appointed, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you were appointed Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health, or PDASH. Um, you share responsibility with the Assistant Secretary for Health, uh, which is, huge position in government. Uh, you uh, manage planning, you manage coordinating and directing program matters, uh, policy, program development, setting uh, program priorities, covering public health activities within the office of the Assistant Secretary for Health. For people who don't understand you know, th that's a lot of responsibility within a government department. And many of these government departments, we many of us in, outside in the world have never heard of. So how does a young college graduate or even a high school graduate aspire towards these positions? Well, I think one of the most important things is having a fundamental understanding that 
you can learn how to do anything. And so I would recommend um, developing the skills and training in public health and in healthcare, um, developing expertise in science area in science fields that are related to those things that you're very interested in. But it's important to have a passion for people and public health to do the work that we do every day. You, it does take a wide range of skills, and I often um, share with my mentees that it is important for you to grow in your position. So over the course of one's career, don't try to jump over experiences that would help you to grow because you will need those skills at some point in your career. Become an executive to become that very skilled and knowledgeable um, senior, senior person in public health or senior official. It does require that you have basic skills in business. Um, you need to know how to manage budgets and financial aspects of, of running an organization. It's also important that you understand the impact of public health in, de in decision making. So I would recommend that anyone who wants to aspire to be the principal deputy assistant secretary for health, um, that they have a wide, develop a wide range of skills, a wide range of knowledge, and be passionate about what you do. And more importantly, um, take your time and grow into that, that executive level type of position that they aspire to achieve, whether it be in public health or in clinical medicine or in science. It's important to take on challenging assignments, but it's also important to understand the level of responsibility that one obtains when you're in these types of high-level positions. Thank you, Rear Admiral. And we're going to focus on those topics of public health, clinical medicine, and related uh, subjects. Uh, we're also going to look back at the last decade and, and all the things that you achieved and grew through um, over the last 10, 10, 15 years. Specifically, from 2015 through 2018, you served as Deputy Surgeon General of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. In that position, you were um, a trusted and critical advisor to the Surgeon General. Um, we've seen the Surgeon General, the, the current Surgeon General, on television and on social media over the past several months. And many of us now understand how critical that position is. In 2018, you were also elected to the National Academy of Medicine and the National Academies of Practice, which we don't understand so much. So what do these achievements mean in your career and what were some of the challenges you had to overcome? Um, thank you for that question. To become, become the Deputy Surgeon General was truly one of the most humbling experiences of my career and that I was asked to take on a position that I really never thought about um, obtaining over the course of my career. I was um, shocked and stunned that I was uh, selected, but nonetheless, I think one of the, one of the things that I uh, took away from the, the um, appointment as Deputy Surgeon General is that I was being offered an opportunity to shape the future of the Commission Corps and to help the Surgeon General provide the best science and public health advice to the nation. I took that responsibility very seriously because there are so many things that go on um, with the American public and their health. And when someone is not healthy, it has a significant impact on the family and the community. So one of the, one of the great achievements of my career that I think um, helped me 
was being able to work in, work in an office with motivated, highly talented, exceptionally brilliant um, individuals who understood the importance of messaging public health to the nation. And they helped me to better understand how important our office was in being able to have a face that, went, that could be attached to a message and having it be received in a way that was nonpartisan, scientifically based, evidence-based, and for the benefit of the health of the nation. And that, to me, was very powerful. It helped me to understand the importance of one voice, one voice being shared um, across the nation simply for the benefit of helping others. And that I will take away um, for the rest of my career. As it relates to the National Academy of Medicine and National Academies of Practice, um, to be recognized by my peers as having achieved a level of, of, of success in my career, but more importantly, being thought, at, thought, at, thought about as someone who could contribute to those two organizations to help sustain and build a better tomorrow from a public health and from a clinical um, practice uh, standpoint was not only humbling, but empowering. I have the opportunity through the National Academies of Medicine and also the National Academies of Practice to work with my colleagues in many disciplines across the, the health and science field to be able to shape policy, to bring new science and technology to the field of, of health and public health, and to identify those areas of interest and in science that need to be explored and, and communicated to the public in a more um, streamlined fashion so that they can understand where the state of science sits and how we can improve our health and improve our society as a whole. Rear Admiral, you have held several positions since in uh, Health and Human Services. Um, what sort of things have you done as both a clinician uh, and administrator to build systems of care that improve public health, particularly for marginalized populations? Well, over my career in HHS, what I have tried to do is to identify those programs that were, had potential for high impact. And high impact mean, meaning that um, if we simply work together on this particular issue, we could make a difference in people's lives. And that's what I've been able to do in HHS. And for example, um, working in the working in HERSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, I was able to work with um, other agencies across the entire federal space, if I, the federal government, to build systems of care specifically focused on improving a health care issue in a given community, because individuals did not have access, or care was too costly, or because there were gaps that had not been addressed. And I was given the um, great gift of working in programs where I was mentored and coached and um, given you know, free reign basically to help build systems and build models that could then be deployed in rural and underserved communities in urban settings um, all, over the, all over the country and then all over the world um, to take those models um, and put them in place to build systems that would address those specific gaps or needs for individuals who did not have access or did not have quality care. You also assisted in managing the 2.3 billion Ryan White program. So a lot, many of us don't know who Ryan White is. So uh, 
giving us a background on who Ryan White is uh, and why a program is named after him uh, to the tune of 2.3 billion would be helpful. But the program currently funds medical care, treatment referrals, support services for uninsured and underserved people living with HIV. Now, people think, well, we're talking about COVID-19, why are you talking about HIV? Well, uh, there's a reason, and, and the rear admiral is gonna tell us why. So th this program also funds training for healthcare professionals, uh, which is very important. But these days, as I said earlier, people are more concerned with COVID-19, but what advice would you give for co combating uh, other diseases in our communities? And the reason I asked this question, I spoke to another admiral in the healthcare field, and he was saying, yes, there, there is COVID-19, but there are also other diseases that we should be concerned about. So if you could give us a sort of like a, a an overview and a background and an understanding of all those issues and, and the questions. Sure, so just a little bit of background on who Ryan White, um, why Ryan White and who is Ryan White. Um, Ryan White was a courageous young man um, who was diagnosed with AIDS following a blood transfusion back in December 20, 1984. Um, he was diagnosed when he was 13 years old. He, was, he lived in Kokomo, Indiana. Um, he was given six months to live. Ryan wanted to go back to school, but there were a lot of, of concerns in, in the community that he would infect other kids and a lot of safety issues from the community. So um, Ryan lived for five years longer than he was expected to, to live. Um, he died in 1990, one month before his high school graduation. Um, so Ryan became the face of the new face of HIV because prior to Ryan, it was considered to be a gay white man's disease. And Ryan changed the way people viewed HIV. And shortly after his, his passing, um, Congress named um, the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, Ryan White Care Act after him and over the years we got to in our program we got to know um, his mother um, Jeannie White Gender and she has been a staunch advocate for for everyone living with HIV the Ryan White program was created um, in 1990 to make sure that individuals who were poor and underserved uninsured and underserved could have access to HIV care um, these days, as you said, people are concerned more with COVID-19, but COVID-19 is, is directly affecting the same populations that are impacted by HIV, the poor, the underserved, and those who have underlying health conditions, in some cases, such as HIV. But we also have some ongoing, long-standing health issues in this country that we have not been able to address, and we must, as a community, um, galvanize support and advocacy for things such as diabetes and chronic disease, hypertension, sickle cell. Uh, in many of our underserved communities, we see high rates of asthma in, in children, and the rate the the, the rate of, of of sudden death has significantly increased from um, myocardial infarction, heart attacks during COVID because people are afraid of going to the emergency room during COVID. So we have a lot of underlying health issues in this in this country and across the world that must be addressed and taken very seriously, even within under with COVID, but separate and distinct from COVID, there are many things in the United States 
uh, that need to be addressed more, more, more focused in a more focused way. And um, just this morning, I had a call with the Surgeon General about maternal health. And maternal mortality in this country is ex extremely high. We have maternal morbidities that are also extremely, um, rates that are unfortunate, for, especially for minority communities. Um, we look at um, you know, mental health conditions across the United States. We've had an increase in suicide in the, in the, last, in the last 10, 15 years that are just skyrocketing. We look at obesity in our adolescent population. Um, we, we, it's very, very challenging for the military to even recruit now because um, I think it's 70% of the, of the individuals from 18 to 25 do not qualify for military service because they have some kind of medically disqualifying condition. So I think as we start to look at um, some of the challenges, we must be more focused on prevention in, this, in, in our nation. We must make sure that everyone has information about um, how to prevent disease versus treating disease. And we must train our clinicians in a way that allows them to focus on prevention and preventive services that are specifically targeted for communities that are most at risk. And what I mean by that is that the United States is more and more becoming more and more diverse by the day. And as we start to look at um, the clinical trial communities, across the world and especially in the United States, we are overrepresented with um, white males in clinical trials. So therefore the medication and treatments that are developed um, are not necessarily this won't necessarily have representation from African American men, African American or Latino women. And that is um, a disservice to uh, the treatment community because we don't know whether or not everyone is going to respond the same way to new and innovative therapies um, if, we only, if we don't have diversity in clinical trials and in the, science, the science that is used to develop these new treatments and modalities. So the community at, as, as a, at large um, must understand how health and prevention work and how we can work together as clinicians and also as in the general community on sharing messages on how we can keep ourselves healthy so we don't end up in the, in the, in the, in the doctor's office or in the hospital to begin with. Admiral, before I go on to the next question, I must ask a supplementary question because you raised such an important issue about the underrepresentation of people of color in clinical trials. There is historical mistrust, as you know, um, going back to the Tuskegee incident, uh, more than an incident, it was a tragedy. So what would you say to address those fears? The first thing is um, we must own it. We must own the Tuskegee study. Um, we, must, we must acknowledge that bias and stigma exist. And we also need to understand that there, the historical issues um, around mistrust and, and, and science and research have to be addressed directly, especially as it relates to the Tuskegee syphilis study. Um, there, there's not enough work has been done to level the playing field in this area. And I think one of the biggest challenges is that we don't have enough um, researchers of color to understand the dynamics of, of science, research, clinical trials in underserved and um, poor communities, and especially when it comes to people of color. And I can say that because having you know, worked in the research environment with some brilliant scientists, a lot of it is just not, they just don't understand, they don't know. 
um, how research is viewed by subjects other than the population that they have worked with. So there's an educational component here for, um, for the scientists, but there's also uh, some, some work that needs to be done in engaging with the community to explain to them what benefit clinical trials have for them as a community and for them in society. We need to also mentor and develop more people of color to go into the sciences and be researchers um, who can then speak to these issues directly and translate to family members, their colleagues, and their communities um, on the benefits and the risk as well. We must be upfront with people about risk associated with, with clinical trials and, and research um, as relates to um, engaging more people who are not the typical research um, subjects. Now, um, in many cases, you know, minority patients uh, may miss out on advances in care simply because they don't know. And we know that if you are not uh, maintaining your routine health um, visits, uh, getting the screening that you need, it's usually because you don't have insurance. And for underinsured populations, uninsured populations, there's a huge gap there with um, routine preventive measures that are that people have access to, but we need to make sure that we are doing everything we possibly can to get access to care and access to treatments, as well as cutting edge um, new clinical advances for everyone um, in, in this nation. You're listening to a conversation with Rear Admiral Sylvia Trent Adams, featuring Lango Dean. Presented by CCG Media. You know, I, I think after this interview, you're going to have to come back and talk to us about building this trust. But for today, I'm going to move on to the next question, uh, which is uh, related to a lot of things you said uh, a few seconds ago uh, about careers. Um, needing more people of color in certain careers. You began your career in the Commission Corps in 1992. Prior, you were a nurse officer in the U.S. Army and uh, a research nurse at the University of Maryland. You also completed two internships in the U.S. Senate. Your clinical practice, uh, you've mentioned uh, a clinical practice several times and even won an award from the top national organization was in trauma. Uh, oncology, community health, which is very important right now, um, and infectious disease, COVID-19, HIV, you name it. What inspired you to make these career choices? Well, I can't say that I, I consciously made decisions of, um, about all of these choices. Some of them were opportunities, and, and I had enough. There were opportunities that came with some challenges, and I like challenges. So the Army, um, I started off in the Army primarily because they, I have received a four-year ROTC scholarship. And in our, the ROTC program, <clears throat> I was able to develop my leadership skills, and it opened my eyes to many things outside of just being a clinical nurse. It taught me about leadership, taught me about building teams, and running an organization. And so I think my thirst for knowledge and different types of experiences came, were, came from, um, you know, the Hampton experience being in ROTC and being in nursing 
and then also being thrust into the community to do volunteer work, working on campus, and um, understanding how important it was for everyone to have access to healthcare, but understanding also that there was a policy component that drove a lot of healthcare decisions that clinicians were not always a part of. So I was, and having that in the back of my mind, um, I always had this curiosity about research. I, I liked answering questions. I like complex questions, and I saw it as a, as a puzzle. So much of my, my career, it seems like I was hopscotching all over the place, but there was usually something that was tying all of these different areas of my clinical um, world into um, this larger problem-solving matrix. And what I saw as being important for me was being able to, to understand the environment that was impacting the patient care that I was delivering. And through those experiences, I'll tell you, I'll give you one example. In the in, when I was working in the, in, in the emergency department, saw lots of trauma, but some of the traumas were caused by violence and um, un, un, unmet healthcare needs and chronic conditions that should have been addressed long before. So then, you know, moving into the oncology arena and seeing that there were some bad decisions made from a public health standpoint that could have if had this patient just, you know, change their eating habits and wouldn't have been able to keep their weight down and put them at lower risk for cancer. Well, now how do I solve that? Well, let's go over to community health and see what's going on over there. So it's almost like this continuum of learning that I was developing over my, over my career. And then I had, at some point, you know, in the clinical arena, especially in the uniformed services, the military and the public health service, you have to make a choice. Are you going to stay in the clinical area or are you going to go into more of the research policy and leadership track? And for me, um, leadership was so important. And I wanted to develop those um, skill sets to be able to help others to be able to find their way so that it wouldn't be so difficult for them to figure out how to get to the decision-making seat at the table. Um, and through their, through their career. If I could do that, then I could open the door for so many other, you know, junior officers or, or civilians who were trying to pay, pass, create a path of success um, throughout their career. So what inspired me to make those career choices was I'm a lifelong learner and building on skill sets that would help to make an impact at a higher level and then being able to share that knowledge with those who were coming behind me. That's wonderful. As I listen to you, Rear Admiral, I'm not only inspired by your passion, by your curiosity, by your um, this this adventuresome spirit that you have with learning, uh, with advancing um, medical knowledge for for yourself and for others, but I'm also amazed that you're operating in a very flat world. You could walk anywhere, literally anywhere. There were no bars. There were no hurdles. Why is that? Why was that? Well, there were hurdles, um, and there were there were walls. There were a couple of walls I had to either climb over or knock them down. <laughs> and, and what I've learned in my career is that if if I if I get to a place where I'm having difficulty trying to get to where I want to be. I need to be still and learn whatever it is that I'm supposed to learn in that position, in that posture, or um, in that situation. And that's been sometimes kind of hard because 
you know, for those of us who just want to get to the next place and get to the, to do the next thing, sometimes it's important to be still and just learn and take that hard lesson and build upon it. Don't get frustrated with it. Don't be upset that you're having to stay still for a while, but absorb. Become that sponge um, that you need to be so you never have to repeat those lessons over again. And there were challenges, trust me. Um, it's not always been easy, and I, I often joke with people and say, I don't look like what I've been through, and that's a good thing. <laughs> um, I, I've had great mentorship. So my mentors and my colleagues that I work with, they've been very supportive. I've learned a lot from both my senior officers that I've served with, the civilians that have helped me to understand the importance of civilian, the civilian side of public health. But um, what I'm inspired by today is I look at the junior officers that are coming behind me. I see a very bright future for this nation as well as for public health because they're smart, they're tenacious, and they have an ability to tune into technology and tools that I don't think I was as, um, I didn't have access to at that point in my career. So I do think that much of what we see as challenges today, we have a good cadre of public health professionals coming up to take on those challenges. What it will take is for us, uh, those of us who are at this point, at this senior level in our career, give them space to develop and allow them the opportunity to cut their teeth, so to speak, on the policy and fiscal management and building skill sets that they need to traverse the world of public health, but also the business at the executive level. Healthcare is a business, and we have to accept, know that, accept it, and work within those confines. And don't run from those, um, those, those opportunities or those, those challenges, but make sure you are developing those hardcore skills to be successful. But on the personal level, you have to make sacrifices. Um, you will work for people who are not so nice sometimes, You'll work for people who are disconnected from the mission of public health and may not have the same level of passion that you have, but you must understand that you can't lose sight of your goal and your mission in, in, in public health or your mission in clinical science or, or research. Because when you lose sight of that, you lose your passion and you lose yourself as it relates to the things that you need to do. Thank you, Rhea Admiral. Um, when you chose Hampton University to do nursing, did you understand or were you taught that the difference between public health and healthcare as a business? Because for a lot of us in, on the, in the world, we don't really understand that, particularly at this time where you have public health officials talking to you on TV and on social media, and then you have uh, healthcare uh, companies and doing, you know, create, uh, creating vaccines and all that sort of thing. So sometimes you don't quite get the distinction between all these facets of, of, of health, this huge thing called health. But the fundamental question is why you chose Hampton University to do nursing? That, that better not be a trick question. Okay. Oh, so no, I it's not. Admiral, it's not. I promise you. <laughs> that. It's just you saying so many things that are teasing my brain and I'm thinking, okay, if I have her now, I might as well ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that question. 
I chose Hampton University's um, School of Nursing because I felt it would give me the best preparation for nursing for a nursing career um, of all the schools that I had applied to. And I got into um, several great schools, but I visited Hampton and I met people who I felt from just instantaneously who were interested in me being successful as a nurse, as a healthcare professional, and as a person. The nurturing and the mentorship that I received at Hampton, I would put up against any university in the world. And I give great credit to um, the dean who was there when I was a student, Dr. Eleanor Daniels, um, for having vision and just her, her ability to just, it, she emanated positivity and that anything was possible. If you worked hard, stayed focused on your mission, and you were giving your everything to your, to your profession and your patients. Um, so Hampton was it, was, it was a bubble in, in a lot of respects because of the way they took care of the students. Now it was tough because there are a lot who came into the nursing program who didn't make it through the nursing program, but they gently directed you in a different field if you did not fit into the, the, the rigors of that nursing program. And there were so many things that I learned um, as an individual, but also as a nurse uh, in that program that helped me to survive many challenges in, in my career, both in the, in the military, in the Army, in the public health service, in, civilian, in the civilian facilities where I have worked, and in academia. It was an expectation that um, nurses who graduated from Hampton's program would go on to get advanced degrees and, and terminal degrees. It was expected, not, not an assumption that you wouldn't. There was no expectation you would stop at the BSN. There was no expectation that you would stop at being a clinical nurse, that you, but you would be a leader. That's one of the things that Dr. Daniels would always say to us, and, and Dr. Pam Hammond said to us repeatedly, you are nursing leaders. You are going to create a space for greatness and excellence in nursing care, and that is your job. It is not to deliver patient care, it is to deliver excellent patient care. So I could, I could go on and talk, I could talk for, forever about Hampton's nursing program, but um, one thing I will say is the, the culture that is fostered in that nursing program, at least during my time there, was one that set the bar very high and set a level of expectation for clinical competency and excellence but also to not forget the importance of humanity and, hum and being in humility in your role as a clinician. Mm. You have gone on, you've climbed higher and higher um, uh, from that point. Uh, one of the awards that you've won uh, includes the International Red Cross Florence Nightingale uh, Medal. Florence Nightingale, um, wonderful woman, and the Red Cross, of course, I originally come from a country where the Red Cross meant everything. And every time you saw that sign or everywhere they were, you knew that community was going to, which is Women of Color's theme, reset and rise. It was just, uh, it was just a given. Uh, their the, the standards of excellence, their standards of getting communities to reset and to rise was just phenomenal. Um, so, if you could address the theme of reset and rise, the world is counting on us uh, for the women of color 
uh, STEM conference in 85 days, 80 days, um, and also tie that back to the whole purpose of heroes, sheroes like uh, Florence Nightingale? Wow, that's a lot. Um, that's a big question. So, well, first, uh, let me say this. What I would say to the women of color STEM community on, on Reset and Rise, it is important that we understand the world is counting on us. The world is counting on us to get it right. Um, the world needs us to be focused on service, to be focused on community and giving back. For those of us who reach a level of success in our career, I find it, it's, it's an obligation to serve others and it's an obligation to, to help others to get to their destiny. Uh, Florence Nightingale, an amazing woman, and to even be considered in the same sentence as Florence Nightingale uh, is, is humbling. And what I would say is there are so many things that Florence did in her lifetime that served, served the benefit of other people. And, you know, she was multi-talented, multi-sectoral multi, um, set, and she never once stopped um, working to achieve the next level of success. But she did it through humility and she did it through service which is what I want to, I would say to the, to the, to the um, community um, of, of, of women of color of STEM. And I would just reflect on you know, something that uh, Florence said, and she said, and I a quote from her is, I attribute my success to this. I have never, I never gave or took any excuse. And we cannot make excuses for not doing everything we possibly can to help our communities. And we must do everything we possibly can to support those individuals who are coming up in the STEM community to reach their, their level of success that they have been destined to achieve. There are so many things that, um, that can be done if we work together as, as one community. And I look forward to meeting all of the, the women of color STEM um, who are going to be at this conference because I think they can be game changers in their own right, but collectively we could really shift the power curve for our youth and for our young professionals um, in, in a way that could never be achieved if we were not working together. So I look forward to having um, more one-on-one -on -one conversations with individuals, but we have to reset and rise. The world is waiting for us to do great things. Mm. Thank you for that message of hope. Um, it's been a, a, a wonderful, wonderful half hour with you. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you about, Rear Admiral? No, ma'am. I would say that, you know, none of us do this by ourselves, and I have an amazing um, family who have supported me wholeheartedly throughout my entire career. My husband uh, and my children and, and, my, and my colleagues in the public service. They support all the crazy things I come up with. And um, I'm grateful and very humbled to be able to have such a, a wonderful support system. And that be the glory because had it not been for the Lord on my side, I don't know where I would be. Okay. Are you going to share with us one crazy thing that you do? The one crazy thing that I do, um, I am obsessed with details. 
And I, I, drive, I drive my team crazy. I ask them the same question probably 50 times. Are you sure about this? Are you sure about that? Because I, I like to make sure that things are done well right. And, right. and done right. And I, I always try to look out for, for, the, for the people around me. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a little, little crazy making, but it's all good. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Rear Admiral, for your time. Uh, we're so grateful uh, that you've uh, given us this uh, audience. And um, we look forward to seeing you virtually or uh, in meeting you in person in Detroit uh, in about 80, 80-something 80 days at the Women of Color uh, STEM conference. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. I truly have enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to A Conversation with Rear Admiral Sylvia Trent Adams, featuring Lango Dean, presented by CCG Media. To stay up to date on the latest news in STEM, please visit www.blackengineer.com, www.hispanicengineer.com, and www.womenofcolor.online. You can also hear our catalog of interviews and conference seminars by visiting www.ccgmag.podbean.com.